I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next interview is with Charles Plant. He is a guy who's kind of hard to pin down. In some ways, well, he self-proclaimed uh, sufferer from shiny ball syndrome, and he's going to talk about that. We're going to talk a lot about uh, entrepreneurship and about innovation and about best practices and, and, and where this whole world is heading and where it isn't heading. He he is referred to uh, also sometimes as a serial entrepreneur. His website, materialminds.com, you'll have to check it out and learn a little bit more about him. But he's had an incredibly fascinating past. And we have this really, uh, as you know, in a way, I guess we have a shiny ball conversation, but we cover a lot of ground. And I think we plant a lot of seeds. We talk about technology and about why businesses fail. We talk a little bit about Charles's pasts and, 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 and what, what the, the idea of a trigger is all about and what that means with respect to getting an idea uh, and turning it into something that's actually going to become a business and truly innovate and, and maybe even change the world. So stay, stay tuned with a really interesting, fun interview with Charles Plant. You're going to love it. You're going to enjoy it on a whole lot of levels. And like I said, it's going to plant some seeds and peel back a few layers for you uh, with regard to a whole lot of things. DavidPeckLive.com. Uh, coming soon to a theater near you. Check it out for a whole lot of other interviews uh, there uh, under Face to Face. And uh, get a copy of my new book, Real Change is Incremental. Stay tuned. Charles Plant. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest today. Charles Plant is here with you, us today. You say that to all your guests, don't you? Well, you know what? Sadly, I do. <laughs> I do. Every we're, we're, we're moving up on 200 guests here, Charles, and everyone's been a very special good, guest. Good, yes. Good. But you're extra special. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for saying uh, yes and for, for joining us today. And, 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 and uh, interestingly, this actually is face-to-face, this interview. Typically, uh, even ironically, a lot of my interviews are over the phone or Skype. So I'm glad to uh, be sitting here with you in Toronto. Uh, kind of a gray day out there, and I'm not sure what to make of that. But anyway, thanks. Gray and getting warm and muggy. Oh, yes, lovely. Sounds yeah. like the weekend must yep. be coming. Yes. 
So Charles uh, is a, well, I'm going to let him tell you more about what he is, he is and what he does and who he is, but he's a serial entrepreneur, which already raises questions for me. Uh, but you're also a researcher. You, 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 you've taught at York University, Schulich School of Business, uh, U of T. It sounds like you're kind of into a whole lot of things. Uh, a lot of people say to me, Charles, that I've got a lot of irons in the fire. I think you're pushing out most of my irons by the sounds of it. Well, I'm um, easily bored. You're easily bored. Suffer from shiny ball syndrome, so anything, anything that's going to entertain me, I'll do. So do you have ADD? Is that, the, is that I, what pr we... Probably, but you know... Should this be a therapy, really? I, I'm at the age where they didn't <laughs> diagnose. I don't think they'd heard of ADD when I was right. in school, so... Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that might have been. Yeah, and do you medicate diagnosis. with Grey Goose? That's the question. With exercise. Exercise. Exactly. Nice. It tries to calm me down. There you go. What's shiny ball syndrome for you? I mean, it's. You know, I just love learning things. Mm. And so I, I, I tend not to like to do things twice. So after I've done it once, I don't want to particularly do it again. So I look for something else to do. And so I wander from thing to thing, entert being entertained and getting a different perspective. It all sort of focuses in on one, um, well, let's say, core theme, which is the technology industry. Right, okay. So I've spent my life in the technology industry in every particular way that you can spend it as an, an entrepreneur, as, a, uh, as an employee, um, as an investor, uh, investment banker. I've worked in venture capital. I've taught it. I've researched it. So, you know, I am just keep looking at the same industry. And what's fascinated me over time is, what's it take to be successful? Uh, how do we define success and, and what do you have to do to be successful? So that probably over the last uh, 15 years has been a big focus for me is researching um, what it takes to be successful with uh, you know, a background of actually having done it and done it badly sometimes and done it well other times. I'd love to talk about that whole idea of success and even, even in your own life, I'd love to, it's interesting that you're researching that and I want, I mean, does that shiny ball syndrome have, have anything to do with you feeling like maybe you haven't been successful yet? Like you've got this hill to climb and you're still pushing the rock up it and eventually you'll go, yep, capital S success, I made it. No, and it's a good question, I mean, to define what success is, because most of the world defines it in terms of, in monetary Usually, terms. Usually, right? Yeah. Usually. But, but that, that's, uh, you know, it, 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 there's always somebody more successful unless you're Bill Gates. It's got to be kind of empty yeah. on some level, I think. And then also, if you don't like uh, buying things, as I'd rather have experiences <laughs> than, than things, that, you know, yeah. what's the use of money? I mean, yes. yeah. There's only so much you can experience, and yeah. you travel the world and do whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, collecting money seems like a fruitless thing to spend your time doing. So no, you know, I'm not, I, I don't really understand myself what I would define success as. Um, so, and that's not what I'm looking at. And, you know, I, I try to look at other people's perspective and say, okay, if you define success in this way, then what can you do to create that type of success? And what do you have to do? And what's the well, research Well, the question say? I have with the whole success thing is, and I've struggled with it as, a, as an entertainer, as a, a guy now who is an entrepreneur and uh, or at least I think I am, and trying to build my own business and working this whole field of social change and international development and struggling. It's tough, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're a party of one often. You're selling, you're consulting, you're yeah. implementing, you're reporting. I just got audited. It's it's exhausting, right? So, But at what point do I say, is, is 85 grand a year enough for me with two uh, with two employees making around the same? Is how, I mean, I, I have my original idea, mm -hmm. you know, for the budget I wanted so change to be at and three employees and a little office space. Haven't got there yet, but at the same time, I've done some pretty cool things, pretty mm -hmm. interesting things. Seeds have been planted. I've made some money along the way. So, 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a tough one because I think the whole success thing can can probably drive you mad on one level, but also could really motivate you on another. It can. It can make you focus. Right. And and maybe that's why I've never been able to focus because I never had a good definition of what success <laughs> is. That you right. know, anything that I do seems to be fun and and interesting so I'll just keep doing the fun and interesting things. So when you say you don't like to do something a second time does that mean you do it long enough to get good at it and then move on? Long enough to get bad at it um, hmm. probably. No I, I'm more of an 80 percenter. You know, okay. I, I could care less about getting to 100 percent. I learn right. enough that I can be effective. So Gladwell would say you put in 8,200 hours? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then go okay that's enough. That's right. I don't need to learn anymore. You know and I first discovered that by by a huge mistake, I became a banker. Hmm. You know, I started out as a chartered accountant, which was mistake number one. Uh, MBA in marketing, which was a good move, but then I thought I'd combine the two in banking. But I, I realized I spent a year in banking, and I learned all I needed to know about banking. And from then on, I said, you know, if I don't like it, I'm not going to repeat it. And so, you know, you can have ten years of experience or. Uh, one year of experience ten times, mm. and I'm looking more at ten years you of know, experience. You know, I have a friend, uh, Eden Rahim, actually, he works in Toronto at a, a capital of hedge fund, and he said to me many times that he tells, uh, not that he mentors a lot of people, but students, uh, you know, there are programs out there that can tell you these things about banking and about the financial world and mm -hmm. so on. And so Eden chose to study philosophy alongside of another discipline outside of the financial world. And here he is today managing a hedge fund. I mean, how cool and interesting yeah. is that? And I wonder if there's something there for you on a relational level, you know? Did you just tap into something there? I learned everything I needed to know in a year. And I needed, uh, I don't know, an, uh, other subtleties, other nuances to keep my interest. Yeah, it's, it, you know, if success, I think, comes, and we're, we're back on this issue of success, sure, sure, sure. from doing the same thing over and over and over and yeah. over again, time and time again, and doing a bit more every year. So it, it isn't typical that you get become successful by doing something different every year. If you look right. at the people who are phenomenally successful, they have a, a path that started really early yeah. and yeah. added and added and added to it. Don't you think, though, that, and you're doing research in this now at U of T and on innovation and entrepreneurship and so on, and clearly a very eclectic background. I mean, your network must be huge, your level of experience. I just think of the narrative that you must have, the stories, the arc. Um, isn't there something to be said for, I, I think sometimes we sell ourselves short, this idea that we have to focus on one thing. I think, I think, I think, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Yes, okay, you can become an expert in, in, in earthworms. Sounds exciting. I know, <laughs> I know, but I guess there are people who yeah. spend their lives studying earthworms. Yeah. And, and listen, I'm really glad they do. But at the same time, I wonder if they could also maybe have learned a heck of a lot about chess and wine mm -hmm. and cooking and relationships. And maybe they do. Maybe they do. Maybe I, I'm not, I haven't done my research. But I hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, Peck, you got to focus on on, on this one thing to get really good at it, and I'm 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 not convinced. Well, I, you know, I think you have to focus on one thing to make a lot of money. Mm. That mm. Mi you might not have to get good at it to make a lot of money. You just have to focus in on it. And, and you know, if you if you look and you said network and how many people you know, you know, if you keep telling the story year after year and it's the same story, you're going to keep meeting more and more people. And you know, you have to tell somebody seven times before they'll listen to you, and you have to tell a thousand people to capture 20 of them. So it becomes a large process of just doing it again and again. So if you suffer from shiny ball syndrome and you get bored doing things, you don't get that type of success. 
So, you know, it's more of a personal success than having done many different things. Do you, do you uh, deal with people the same way? Do you find the shiny ball syndrome bleeds off into your relational world? So, so do, you, do you get bored with people quickly? Like, no, that's, that's funny because I've got a group of friends that I've been good friends with for over 40 years. Oh, okay. And I still see them. I go on vacations with them. Uh, I see them on a regular basis. So, no, in fact, that it is a very you know, rock-solid group of friends that I've had for a very long time. Which, you know, back to the whole, maybe maybe we're, we're, this podcast is going to end up being about success, but I mean, I, I think successful people are surrounded by a circle of people, a core group of people that they call friends that are confidence, that are mentors, and so on. You know. Well, the interesting thing about my, my group of friends is they're all very outdoor athletically oriented and scratch their heads when I start talking about the world of technology. Mm. So the, the two worlds just do not meet. Right, right. So, so tell me more about this world of technology and and where we're heading. Like, what 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 are you what are you seeing? I mean, wh how come we're not wearing rocket packs yet? That's you know, I think that <laughs> might be the fundamental question, right? Yeah, they 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 lied to me. <laughs> exactly, the Jetsons. Where are they now? <laughs> they lied to yeah. me. No, but you know, I was getting frustrated last night with my iPad because it's slow. Yes, I would and, agree. And then I, my line is every time I get cut off with one. I was on the phone last night with a guy. Uh, cell phone three four times and he kept talking about oh so David you're clearly your patient calling me back there's all these spots on the highway and I go you know they're going to be great one day when they get them figured out yeah right and it's my line now with because it happens all the time yeah but you know you think back 20 years and there was no access to information we've become spoiled so we do have rocket packs but they're mental rocket packs mm. we we've got information up the wazoo and uh, don't know what to do with it. We're inundated and overwhelmed with information. So in one way, yeah, we haven't, we haven't figured out how to get from Toronto to Montreal in an hour, um, but we've figured out how to know everything we can possibly know about Montreal without going there. Do you think the future is going to be about, um, and maybe that's where technology is heading, is, is helping us filter? Or is that going to really only ever be a relational kind of intentionality that we all have to come to terms with? You know, the ubiquity of the internet, the access to information, it's all there, right? The distraction of it. Yeah, you know, I'm not much of a futurist. I can't, I scratch my head wondering what's going to happen in the future and all the, the trends that I've been part of, but I haven't really noticed them as trends, maybe because I've been in them too early or something like that. But, um, you, know, you mentioned a good thing about the ubiquity of information. People don't want information. Mm. Um, and we were talking about that a little earlier. And the knowledge economy and, and thought leadership and things like that is that what's resonating with people is not fundamentally the information that's out there. It's what's resonating is clickbait. Uh, people get an emotional connection from what they're consuming. Um, in terms of any form of internet consumption, and that's what matters now, not uh, the click, information. Click, clickbait being a, an ad on a Facebook page or somewhere that on an, on an internet page that's not related to what I actually went there for. Oh yeah, it's right. uh, you know ten celebrities that look terrible now. Um, <laughs> right, I was on that ten last night. Ten child, <laughs> ten child stars that you know have heroin right. addictions. Right. Yeah, that's yes. the sort of thing. You know, yes. they they make us feel better about ourselves. And that's the emotional uh, reaction that our people are having, and they're passing by this the the knowledge and intellect um, on the way to so forming an emotional connection. Do you think that's fulfilling a need 
or is that really purely a distraction? No, I th uh, you know, it makes people feel good. And I think that's a need. And, you know, if you look at social media and the way people interact on social media and what, what triggers their interest and what triggers their response, it, it's a very strong emotional connection. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say that people don't used to have it and, and, um, and don't have it anymore, so they're craving it. I think they just crave it all the time and are now have the opportunity to experience it in more facets. Okay, the risk of going a little too deep, and I don't think it is really that deep, but... Um, we won't get into Schopenhauer here, I promise. No, okay, excellent. Uh, is it, I mean, is there is there a, a desire for intimacy there? Is there a desire for that circle of friends, that group of people that a lot of folks don't have, therefore uh, clickbait is so popular? I mean, it's, it's connecting on some level, as you say, emotionally, narratively? Well, I'm not sure that intimacy is is the right word um, but the emotional connection with with stars is very important with stars as in celebrities celebrities yeah the, um, and celebrities who are very effective at, at creating that emotional connection Kardashians mm -hmm. what on earth I, I don't I said to Elizabeth uh, my wife a couple nights ago there was a piece I think on the Trevor Noah show the old the daily yeah. show I, I don't I honestly don't get it yeah. I don't even know where they came from I well, couldn't give you a history I we don't get it because we've been disintermediated. You know, we we of the so-called um, thought leadership, uh, intellectual elite, educated, small percentage of the population have been bypassed by this Kardashian effect, which doesn't appeal to us, and we don't understand it because it's not meant for us. It's the Occupy movement on social media. So who care? I don't care what you're thinking anymore. I care about what Kim Kardashian's wearing. Do I need to be concerned about this as a parent? Um, I was a parent. Well, I, you know, my kids are so old now that I, I don't even think about <laughs> things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, well, I suppose you know you hear and, and, and you hear about it a lot. I'm telling you. I mean, we, you don't have to go too far to get into a conversation with a parent about the internet. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And that's not just a reference to, uh, you know, the nastiness of the, the internet, but it's it's just, yeah, it's about access, I guess. It's about the ubiquity of it, it seems to me, anyway, uh, the immediacy. Yeah, I wouldn't think you'd be concerned about it. I think it's actually a good thing. I, I, I happen to think gossip is a great thing, because gossip is a way that society regulates its own behavior. You learn about, when you, when you gossip, you learn about what other people think of certain different types of behavior. And so that's a lot of what's happening on the internet now is you're learning about other people's behavior and the reaction that our other people are having to that behavior. So instead of the small town environment which many people grew up in without the internet years ago and your behavior being moderated by people that you knew in the town telling you to behave that way or not to behave that way, it's now happening through social media and, and you can see what people do and the disapproval they get and the approval they get and that is moderating people's behavior. So if you're worried about the messages that they're getting because you don't like those messages, and that might have be might be of concern. But you know, I, I think people are normally level headed and so they're not uh, it can be a force for good. You didn't go to Rexdale Public School. 
I didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> this, this notion about gossip uh, being a way a society regulates itself sounded like something Christopher Hitchens would have said or, or Noam Chomsky. Well, sure, well said, yeah. maybe I yeah. like Noam Chomsky yeah. better because he yeah. seems like a much nicer person. Yeah. Yeah. Christopher you know, Hitchens is a polemicist of the highest order, so I'll sit and berate everybody as I say it. It's kind yeah. of true, isn't it? It's too bad because I think he was a brilliant man. Yeah. And, uh, but you're right. It just He always seemed to have issues. A little too angry. Very angry, and yeah. Chom- I don't know about you, but I just love watching Chomsky. Yeah. I just I can watch him talk about anything. And, yeah, and uh, totally. my favorite line of Chomsky's is, it, it, "It's in the literature." So you know, in other words, <laughs> yeah. smarten up <laughs> yeah. and go and read a few yeah. books. It's yeah. just it's in the literature. You can check the literature. So how do you? So it sounds to me like you've been innovating for years. You've been you've been turning corners. You've been climbing hills. You've been you know create milestones. You know use, we can use all the language we new want products, new companies, new Absolutely. always trying something. You became new. a banker. You were you yeah. were CFO at Mars for yeah. heaven's sakes. Yeah, how, how a, do you... That was a mistake too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Funny, but still really largely innovative in a sense. I mean, you didn't start out as that. That you, it yeah. wasn't something you really wanted. Right. Which the, the Mars or the, the Mars thing by the sounds well, of it. No, no, that one wasn't. The, the problem is once you're a chartered accountant and background in finance, you know, people look around and go, oh, you can do that. Right. Uh, right. You get dragged back into something because right. the, the people in, of that ilk are in high demand. And so, you know, I, I've struggled to keep away from it. And every now and then I slip back into something I know I don't enjoy. But so, so how after all these years, and I don't know how many of that is, and you don't have to tell us, but. You've got older kids. I did catch that. Um, how do you define innovation? Oh, well, you know, classically, it's a, a new idea that reaches the marketplace. So, the, and I say idea. Sounds very be, Wikipedia-ish. Yeah, I know. It can be in the form of a product or a, a movement or something. But, you know, it doesn't work unless it's accepted in the marketplace. So there's the two aspects of it's new and it gets into the marketplace somehow. Podcasts, good example that we were talking about earlier or innovation that's been successful in the marketplace. What, what, about, what about just ideas? Um, I mean, can, you can innovate on a relational level, can't you? You can innovate in a marriage. You can innovate with your family. I mean, totally. it's not just about selling a product, right? It's not just about a business venture, although it seems like that's what we mean, or, mm-hmm. we, or maybe pharmaceutical companies or... Uh, an advance in the car. I mean, we're looking at a new car, and like, holy cow, have they ever turned up the the volume on the gadget side mm-hmm. of things? It's yeah. cool. I mean, it's <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> little little flashlights yeah. that are in the trunk now that you have, you know, yeah. it's just amazing stuff. And you go, wow, what a great idea. Wish I thought of it. Yeah, it, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest forms of innovation comes in new ideas, and you can almost look now and see the ideas that are being accepted by society that would have been totally unacceptable a number of years ago. And you can look to the United States and compare the ideas that um, are successful in Canada that are not uh, succeeding in the United States and are successful in some parts of the states and not in others. And you can actually track the acceptance of ideas through a population in the same way that you track the acceptance of a new product innovation through a marketplace. And it takes about a generation. And you sort of say, well, that's odd because Facebook was um, accepted much faster than mm-hmm. you know, 30 years. But when it comes right down to it, um, Facebook is a real outlier. It's not just a unicorn. It's way up there. and It's the unicorn of all unicorns and has reached tremendous penetration in the marketplace very quickly. 
But if you look at cell phones, which are still growing in acceptance, and I had my first cell phone in the mid-80s. So we, we are 30 years into the cell phone marketplace, and it's still a, a growing um, business worldwide. So ideas are the same way. Look at acceptance of marijuana. I mean, I don't know what age you are, but it was certainly accepted by my generation mm -hmm. uh, at a very young age. Mm -hmm. But it's taken my generation to become the old age to, right. to get over the hurdle of being widely accepted. And, and also still not accepted in a lot of places and by a lot of people. Exactly. And may, and may never be. It right? may never, it'll I mean, take look, a while. You look at, how about political, right? I mean, and right now it's just perfect timing to make fun of what's going on politically pretty much around the world, it seems yeah. to me. Uh, but but you you don't have to look too far south to to say this is a game show, isn't it? And we're gonna wake up and somebody's gonna go, ha ha! I had you all along, and I keep waiting for that. But it doesn't seem like that's coming. So in the, in the, in the, on the sort of the other the flip side of that is the lack of innovation, the inability to see. I, I'm fascinated uh, as a social change guy, as a philosopher and teacher and so on, and, and a guy who tries to plant seeds. Yep. I want to plant a seed with you for change that I know that maybe if it's nurtured well and watered, it's going to grow into something else. Um, what is it that takes you to the next, you know, to the next level that gets you outside of your framework? You know, I had a gender specialist speaking in my class yesterday and I asked her in front of the class, you know, how do you put on a new lens? How do you do that? And maybe it takes a generation. Well, you know, I, I, I study this with regard to product acceptance and when you look at it, there's something fundamental that has to be there to, to move people towards a new idea or a new product, and that's a trigger. And you look at products that have failed in the marketplace, like Google Glass, you know, that, that came out to great fanfare, and a few people bought it, and then it just absolutely went back in the cupboard. Uh, the, fundamentally, there was no trigger that said to people, yeah, that's something I have to have. And, and I think the, as you look at social change that same concept of a trigger has to exist and it the the acceptance of something comes from a reference to somebody else who's accepted it whose opinion you you uh, hmm. think is a valid opinion so as you look th look through and this is, comes back to the problem of thought leadership and emotional leadership is that the intelligentsia might accept something but that doesn't translate to the people who aren't affected by logical decisions or more affected by emotional emotions. So I know I'm, I'm rambling here no, it's good. a little, but you know, there, there's something that has to move ideas through a population that is more and more reluctant to accept new ideas, and particularly with age and socioeconomic factors. You know, if you look at Crossing the Chasm, which is a, um, Jeffrey Moore's um, classic book on how technology gets accepted, it's the same thing with ideas. Ideas have to cross the chasm. They have to meet some need, some trigger in the you know, so-called pragmatists to get out of the hands of, let's call them the intelligentsia, and into the mainstream of the market. It's fascinating to me that the fair trade market existed in Wilberforce's day, that, that you could get fair trade sugar, that there were groups of women in the UK that were saying, this is wrong, the way we're treating people who, who farm sugar mm -hmm. and sugar cane, and we've got to change that. Mm -hmm. That's what? 120 years ago, yeah. quite, quite a while ago. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the whole fair trade sugar movement hasn't really panned out in maybe the way they were hoping. Yeah. And yet, fair trade is definitely seems to have taken, and yet it represents a very small percentage of, say, the coffee market, for instance. Mm -hmm. 
So we're talking 120 years of thinking and thought, you know? So forget the people who really, you know, if you look at Jeffrey Moore's uh, Crossing the Chasm, the the technology enthusiasts and the visionaries, they can accept these new ideas like fair trade. Yes. But what's going to get the average person to accept a new idea when they're getting anybody to change is really, really difficult. Yes. Look at smoking. I mean, people yeah. have known since the 50s that smoking is bad for you, but still 20% of the population smokes. Yeah. Those people need to be triggered Hand somehow. Washing's another goodie. Yeah. That's another good example. A, a trigger comes because something's changed in your life, and that change in your life means that you have to see things with a new lens. You have a new set of needs, new set of requirements. You know, triggers happen when people go to school or leave school, when they get married, when they have a family, when they have... Uh, you know, a new job. These are natural triggers that occur. In companies, they occur when um, the company has to scale or the technology's changed or something like that. So, you know, even with ideas, people have to be triggered into the acceptance of the ideas. I love what you said earlier. I would love to go down this path for a second, and then I want to come back to your comments about thought leadership and the versus emotional, or the thought versus the Mm -hmm. emotional. Uh, because I think there's something really interesting there, but also a, a great insight about how I don't think many of us are logical at all. I think most of what we do is emotional, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Um, you said that you know, for trigger, the triggers often can come through, especially with social change and maybe with product, uh, a group of people that have also sort of accepted that within your circle of reference, Yeah, I guess, or yep. circle of influence perhaps, yep. maybe. To me, that's an argument for, for, for being optimistic. For, to me, that's an argument for saying change is possible because I don't know when, where, and if I'm going to maybe potentially affect somebody else's thinking in a way and, and shift them and, and actually act as that trigger effect to take them to the next. Does that make sense? Yeah, but there's another factor here, and that's the barriers to change. People don't like to change. And, no, you know, you so know there true, are risks right? to, do, to deal with change. There are, there are learning costs. There are implementation costs. The, the biggest barrier is you know, what, what is called the endowment effect. And when, when you own something, it's part of your endowment. This is why hoarders hoard. You know, they see that everything they own is part of them, mm. and they're reluctant mm. to part with it because they feel they're losing part of themselves. So to get someone to accept a new idea, they have to lose an idea that they currently have. Right. And if they identify themselves with that idea or with that group of people then they don't perceive the value of the new idea alone. They perceive the new idea as adding value, but they see a loss in the old idea. And people hold to these old ideas because it's part of them. It's how they define themselves. It's, it's you know, uh, I'm a Maple Leafs fan. Well, you move to Vancouver. You're going to become a Vancouver fan? Probably not, just because it's part of your being that you're a Maple Leafs fan. Sadly enough. So basically, we're not. The barriers to moving forward have to do with our own deep insecurities. (laughs) Is that another way of looking at it? Well, you know, you're married. Yep. Have you tried to change your spouse? Mm. How's that work? How's that working out for you? Yeah, Yeah. it doesn't. I mean, you can't change the people that are closest to you. And then look at the things that you might have done to try and change yourself. You know, people say, you know, I'm. I'm a procrastinator. I want to change. People don't change. You know, it's a really, really difficult thing for an individual who is really motivated to actually change. And yet, as an innovator, you have to, on some level, believe in systemic change. No. As an innovator, what you have to do is find what the triggers are mm. and build ideas and 
uh, products around existing triggers and not try and trigger people to change because you don't have enough money to do it. Interesting. Uh, that's the you, you've got to find the receptiveness to 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 something an idea if you're working in the world of social change. Find what's going to trigger people. So so people will change. It's just going to be really hard. Yeah. You've got to continue to focus on those triggers. Yeah. Uh, find out what they are, which requires all kinds of. Um, I would suppose uh, research and analysis and frankly I mean for me and people are going to get sick of hearing this on my podcast on face to face but I continue to talk about this idea of listening and and I wonder if to be a good innovator to be an entrepreneur if you have to listen and it sounds to me like you do and, and it, for me it's about meditating it's about focusing and trying to live in the moment and being present with others and all those things but as a development guy as a social change guy if you're not listening to the culture that you're working in you're kind of screwed right yeah totally and sadly I think yeah. but it, in, you know, in it's one step more than listening it's asking all, all sorts of questions mm, mm. people are really bad at asking questions when you come come right down to, well you're a professional question asker so <laughs> you're pretty good at it but most people you meet, cocktail party or something, they don't ask you about yourself. They aren't asking questions, so they're not listening, they're not learning. And, you know, that's the way most people act. It's interesting. Very, very yeah. difficult to move them towards that. So, you know, yeah, if you want to affect social change, you have to be listening very closely to what's going on. I think one of the most interesting things nowadays is that we're seeing the Occupy movement manifest, because well, you're, you're dealing with social change now, we're seeing the Occupy movement manifest itself differently in different places. Um, you know, it's given rise to Trump, it's given rise to Saunders. Mm, I interesting. think. Um, wow, know, wouldn't they, I don't, I don't, it's the first time I've heard somebody connect the Occupy movement with oh Trump. Oh yeah. It's I, a, think, I think they'd be horrified. But, but it's, it's a general dissatisfaction yes. with the uh, elites and the power elites, yep. and yep. and the, you know, hogging all of the resources, the the lack yep. of upward mobility that's occurring in the U.S., and they're going in two directions. The gap, the gap continues to grow, and we don't give a rat's ass about it. Yeah. is what people are reacting against. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, interestingly enough, if you you look at Trump, um, Clinton, and Saunders, and look at the type of reaction they're making. You know, Trump doesn't say anything logical. He doesn't, you know, there's, there's just nothing. There are no facts there. It, and it doesn't matter. He could be the, the most illiterate person in the world, and it wouldn't matter because he makes an emotional connection. Mm. He's playing off of fear and He's doubt. And, yeah, and, and it, totally. Fear, <laughs> doubt, and uncertainty. Fear, doubt, and uncertainty. You know, Fear, uncertainty, FUD? So the FUD well, I, I know there's a factor there somewhere. There's there an is, acronym somewhere yeah, yeah, that yeah. they got. You know, on the other side of the coin, we've got Saunders, who is not only making uh, an intellectual connection, and so he appeals to the intelligentsia, but he's making an emotional connection at the same time with the whole generation. I think it's mostly to do with his hairdo. That's really what I think it is, or the fact it's that good he good hair. Yeah. I'll never forget the first time I saw him was on the John, when John Stewart was still at the helm at the, the John Stewart show, and that's kind of how they came in. Cheap laughs yeah. were over his hair, and just it was all over the place, and just so non-presidential, <laughs> this guy. Yeah. And to see where he's come is really remarkable. Yeah, and he's got a haircut. Encouraging, and it's yeah, that's right. <laughs> he's bought a brush, yeah. and it's really affirming to me. Yeah, you know, wow, a guy with some different ideas standing on the outside can affect that kind of change. Right? Well, look at Canada in the last two elections. Mm. Uh, Leighton made an emotional connection. 
Yes. And yes. Ignatieff, yeah. that's all huge pulsating brain yes. in Ignatieff, yeah. but yeah. couldn't make an emotional connection with the voters. And so they swarmed towards Leighton because he actually was connecting. And then Leighton got replaced by Mulcair, and what sort of emotional connection is there there? Yeah. Trudeau came along, and everybody sort of said, well, you know, maybe he's an intellectual lightweight, but he sure has a lot of emotional intelligence. Yeah. And yep. he appeals yep. on an emotional level. His father actually appealed on both levels. On both levels, Which yeah. was a phenomenal, and you, don't, you rarely get that. That's what people are looking for now. They're not looking for the intellect. Otherwise, Trump would, you know, we'd have Cruz there. Because Cruz is a, as much as I might hate anything that he says, he is a pulsating brain. Right, right. Um, but doesn't matter. It's interesting. I want to come back to that if we if we have time for it, because to me it seems like what you're really talking about there is, and maybe this is connected to the thought leadership question, but you had mentioned before off, off, offline that thought leadership is kind of dead before it's even really begun, this notion of it and this movement, I guess, if you yeah. want to call it that. Love to hear more about that. And is it connected to what you're saying here, this idea that we don't want the intellect? I don't want the facts anymore. I want I want story. I want you to yeah. connect with me personally, relationally. Yeah. Connect with me as a human being, and then maybe I'll buy your product, or maybe I'll change socially, or maybe I'll buy into the movement. Well, a certain percentage of us deal logically and rationally, and perhaps not emotionally, but it's a small percentage of people. And you know. Well, and it's not to say you can't do both. Right? No, Charles, I mean, true, but you know, you take a look at people who are scientifically trained and. The whole university environment doesn't train you to think emotionally. It's so if you look at the twenty percent of the people who are classically trained that way, and ran the economy and ran the businesses and ran the networks and ran the media, you know they were promulgating their view of the world, which is an intellectual and logical view of the world. And all of these people who are the creators of thought leadership have dis been disintermediated by YouTube and Twitter and the possibility to form a direct emotional connection with followers that bypasses the so-called intelligentsia. Uh, can you just quickly, before you go back to that, explain disintermediation. What does that mean exactly? Well, we, we used... Taken out of the equation, essentially? Yeah, yeah. We used to have the CBC, which would curate everything for right. us. And we had a series of curators. They existed in magazines and newspapers and TV and radio, and they were all the people with the degrees and all the ones that favored the intellect over the heart. And, you know, so they were the ones that controlled who got to see what uh, in terms of any media all and who news, got to connect. All the news that we think is fit that, to print. Exactly, totally. It's, and, and so now it, that, that, that group has been bypassed. And so all of a sudden these strange new ways of thinking are coming about because people are being influenced emotionally. Vaccination and the rise of the, the incredible increase in the people that aren't getting vaccinated, which is completely unscientifically based, is entirely based on the emotions and the connection that people have with a number of so-called emotional leaders or celebrities out in the marketplace. Um, you know, that's the effect of this type of of uh, disintermediation. So in other words, we don't need thought leaders because we can go dig it up for ourselves? Yeah, well, yeah, of... don't don't stuff your thoughts down my throat again. I've been doing that for centuries. I, you know, I don't care about what you think. I care about how I feel. And that's care about what... how I feel or about how you feel or no, both? most people care about how they feel. So I care about how I feel. 
And if you make me feel happy, if you make me feel safe, and you uh, help deal with my fears, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like Does you. That, is that connected at all, do you think, to sort of the, um, what I'm going to call affectionately, I think, the Google Office-like space movement? So open, you know, get rid of those ugly banking barriers that people used to have. And, you know, on, you know, on floor number four, you'd walk, you wouldn't see any human faces. You'd just mm -hmm. see these cloth walls. Um, you know, putting a ping pong table in the cafeteria, you know, you can bring your dog to work. I mean, is this about appealing to people emotionally to make them better employees, oh, I, kind of? I, mean, I think that's more about saving money. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I've been in a few offices that are, that are like that. I, I guess some people can work that way. I can't. I, I need a... I need no distractions. I need a barrier in front of me to work right. properly. But well, I think, and I haven't read much of it, but I think there is some, uh, there has been a few articles I've seen of late uh, talking about maybe it's a little more limited than we thought, this idea of open office environments mm -hmm. and, you know, that whole relational that you can see everybody kind of thing because it is very distracting and people can't focus. Yeah, I think you know, it would be nice to see them if you're standing, but when you're sitting, you shouldn't. That, right. That's just my opinion. Right, you know, right. Not, this isn't an area in which I've got much experience anyway. So if thought leadership's m moving to the side, does that mean something else will replace it? Is that, well, I mean, well, does funny, everybody become an expert then? Yeah, but the funny thing is that it, it's it's not moving to the side. People are doing more and more, or trying to do more and more sure, with thought leadership. Sure, sure. It's a burgeoning industry. Yeah. But uh, they're moving in the wrong direction when they try and make it more about intellect than, than emotion. Interesting. And... Uh, the very successful marketers are the ones that can appeal to the, uh, that can make an emotional appeal in t for ideas or for products or services or whatever you want. It's the, uh, I'd like to teach the world to sing concept. And keep it company. So if you, if you look at that as, as a, a real departure um, and the creation of an emotional connection with a product, that's what successful is that why are doing. so so I've heard crazy stats and we're gonna to have to w wrap this up sadly in a couple of minutes but uh, is this why so many businesses fail is this why uh, I think what is it 80% of all businesses in, in Canada fail uh, maybe North America wide well 75% of, of startups fail and 90% of new products fail which is wow. even more abysmal it really is and, and the reason craziness. the reason the new startups are a lower percentage is that there's a large percentage of service businesses there so does that mean my new paperclip's not going to take yeah well, oh, come on <laughs> I've been working on this for years exactly uh, you know most of the t most of the time uh, in fact the, the greatest percentage of product failures comes from a lack of a market hmm. because people marketers and innovators don't understand the triggers and barriers that exist in the marketplace and don't understand how to differentiate themselves from the competition. And the really successful marketers are the ones who come up with radically different uh, ideas that uh, get over the, you know, the barriers and appeal to triggers that are already existing. And instantaneous success hmm. happens. You don't see it very often with companies, hmm. but... Um, company like Uber is a great example of something that that has connected with people in a way um, you know everybody's looking for taxis you know people need transportation and and so the trigger already exists and they took competition to a new level by competing on the basis of quality cost and speed all at the same time really highly differentiated from what was there not so much an emotional connection but uh, really different 
several ways of being really different. One of them is the emotional side, and one is the through um, a product that is substantially, radically different. Well, I mean, I think on some level, and I haven't used Uber, but from what little I've heard, I would think, my words, but they've, they've made the, that experience more relational. I think they have, which is ironic based on the technology. I remember sitting in the, within the, on the train coming into Toronto and somebody sharing, here's how it works. Yeah. Oh, and they're great, by the way. And they're nice, and you don't have to tip because it's all included. I mean, it was all kind of about not just the transaction, but but the, that relational component to it, which I thought was and, kind and, of interesting. And when the driver's on the way, you actually get a picture of the driver. So oh, is that right? You, you know what kind of car they're driving. Wow. You get a picture of the driver, the name of the driver. You've humanized it a bit, yeah. it seems to me. Yeah. Um, sounds like you've got a few books in the making. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Material Minds as we wrap up. Uh, can you talk to me about what's next? So you're researching, you're... Well, I write a lot, but I write badly. You're working on the rocket pack? Is yeah, that exactly. <laughs> I, you know, you, and this is, this is also back to this intellectual versus mm -hmm. emotional connection, is that... You know, when you spend your life in business, you're trained to write like a business person. You try and write for a different audience, you can't write. I'm, I'm, my right. writing is dry and dense and turgid. <laughs> and I'm lousy at it. I we, write a we lot. We will quote you on that. Yeah, I write a lot. I write very fast, and uh, but very poorly. So I'm trying to learn to write in a way that has a wider appeal. And what I'm writing about is is the these issues of um, triggers and barriers, the uh, how to differentiate yourself from the competition, dealing with issues like ambiguity. You know, people really hate ambiguous. Um, which, which, frankly, is why I think people don't want to change. That's there, there's there's a reason for not wanting. To and change. there are some marketers that are very good at resolving ambiguity, yeah, yeah. and when they do, they they knock down a few of the barriers. So the, right. the, it's very comp getting people to change is so complex. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. and in terms yeah. of ideas or yeah. in products, that's yeah, sure. what successful sure. people are able to uh, do. Book, book on the market anytime soon? Oh, yeah, maybe in a year or so. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Good. So, uh, well, listen, thanks so much for joining us today. I, uh, part two is, I hope, pending. Uh, uh, maybe this was fun. The, at the book release party. Yeah. I'll bring some wine. And, Deal. And uh, you bring the books. Um, Charles Plant, Material Minds, yep. plural, materialminds.com. Uh, check him out there online and look for his new book, soon to be released at your local Amazon. <laughs> exactly. Your digital bookstore. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.